Good morning. Great to see you this morning. Today we continue in our series teaching through the book of Ephesians. So if you would grab your Bibles, your devices today to follow along. And we will start teaching from Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 15. Thank you, Nathan. Great job last week as well, getting us to verse 15. And um, we're so thankful for, for your ministry here. Also, I want to remind you, those of you that are journaling with us, and if you haven't been doing that, a great day to start that. When you leave today, you can pick these up outside in the lobby. And there is uh, just great... uh, pages in here blank so you can write along beside the text that we teach on on Sunday mornings along with a reading guide as well so you know where we are in the series as we work our way through the book of Ephesians. So today Ephesians chapter 1 and starting with verse 15. So I call this to know God and so I have just so much to say to you this morning because there is so much in these verses that I want to jump right into our teaching, if you don't mind. So no kind of funny story to start with or whatever. I just want to kind of jump right in and let's talk about these verses together. So back to the text that Corey read so well a few moments ago, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, Paul says, and that's important because that encompasses everything that he said in the first 14 verses. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Now, remember when Paul starts this letter out, and we're three weeks into this, he starts this letter out to the church at Ephesus. He calls them faithful. He does. He refers to them as being faithful people. And then when you flip over to the uh, book of Revelation written by John. John uh, writes in chapter 2, he writes about the church at Ephesus and he calls them enduring, he calls them patient, he calls them that they, they're bearing up well under the environment in which they are living and they don't grow weary for a geographical context for a moment. Ephesus is not a very friendly or Christian friendly city. It is a city where there are 50-plus temples to false gods that uh, are located there. It's a very very educated city, the largest library known in that time. And, And so it's not a city that is very friendly to Christians because of the temples and other things that happened there. But then what John says about Ephesus, even after Paul has called them faithful, even after he says that they're enduring and not grow weary... He said, but I have something against you, is what he says. And then he says that because you have abandoned, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And so I thought about that for a moment. We covered this a few weeks ago. I think it's important to understand Ephesus together. And that is that there is a difference between the word abandoned and the word lost. And I think that sometimes in some translations, they use the word lost. I look back and actually the transliteration of this word is better abandoned. Lost is something that you can accidentally leave somewhere and walk away from. The word abandoned means that you have purposely walked away from that. And so to understand Ephesus, we have to see them in that light. 
that they have walked away purposely from something. What have they walked away from? And that is what John says. They walked away from what they loved first. And that is they've walked away from their love for the gospel and their overwhelming love for Christ. They've fallen out of love with Jesus in the middle of being faithful, in the middle of being patient, in the middle of being enduring, in the middle of never growing weary. They've fallen out of love with Christ. How is that possible? It is very possible, isn't it? Because some of you are sitting right here in this very room watching us online today. And you are there. You're faithful and you're enduring and and you are pressing on in the faith. But yet you have fallen somehow out of love with Jesus and the gospel. And when you hear the gospel story, it doesn't move you like it did once in your life. And that's exactly where they are at Ephesus. And so Paul starts out by saying to them that faith and love, because that's where he starts in. He said, faith and love does not earn you this place in God's great work, is what he's saying to them. But it's evidence of Christ within you. And I think it's so interesting that it is evident of Christ within them, yet there is something lacking within their life. But then Paul commends them for their love for all the saints. And so what I realize is this, that loving you does not earn me a place in Christ either. But it is the evidence of Christ working through me and working within me. But yet Paul doesn't do something here, which really stuck out to me. And he does not give thanks for their love for God, but he gives thanks for their love for one another. And so I thought in looking at this and looking at these people that attends the church in Ephesus, that what is the ultimate evidence of our faith in life? What is the ultimate evidence of our faith in life? Oh, is it that of being patient and enduring and faithful and and not growing weary? Because evidently they've fallen out of love with Jesus and, and, and they're all of those things. So what is the ultimate evidence of our faith in Christ? And when I read this, what I realize, it's not that I just claim that I love God. It's more than that. It's more than just me saying to you, oh, I love God with all of my heart, and that is the evidence of Christ in me. No, it's that I love you, is what it is. That's exactly what Paul is saying. It's my love for you. The greatest evidence of Christ within me is how I love you and how I treat you. Wow. Mark, prove that to me, right? I want you to prove that to me. Oh, thank you for the challenge, and I will. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Not me, but God speaking to you. Here's what it says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Wow. Those are strong words. There were some words growing up. I'll get back to the verse. Don't change it yet. There are some words growing up with my mom that I could never say, right? One word, my mother thought the word stupid was a terrible word, right? And so if I said that, I would probably get smacked by my mom. She thought it was terrible. It's demeaning, right? And and then the other thing that my mother would never allow me to say growing up was that or call someone a liar, because she said, always said that it was nicer to say a misrepresentation of the truth is what she said, right? Yeah. Well, 
What here John says, he calls them liars. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. And so when I read this first verse, and Mark, you're taking a long time with one verse. You got a bunch to go. I know. Give me a break. But here's the thing, right? Yes, you got to see this. That the greatest evidence of my relationship with Christ and Christ within me is not that I say that I love God. Because even that Paul doesn't even start out by admonishing them in that area. He doesn't. And it's not that I'm even faithful or patient or all of those kinds of things. The greatest evidence of my life, of my relationship with Christ and Christ is within me, is how I treat others around me. Wow. So you have met the person next to you, your great friends. You're going to be going out to lunch afterwards. You knew this was coming, right? Yes. And you still came back to this church. So you look at the person next to you for a moment. Could you look at them for a moment? Don't, they, they won't bite you. And say, the greatest evidence of Christ in my life is how I love you. Could you say that to them for a moment? Ah, oh, Boy. Is that not contrary to the conversation on the way here, isn't it? For some of you. Yeah. You're repenting. That's okay. This should be a place of prayer and repentance. Amen. So that's, this is a good place to do that. So let me move on. Verse 16. Then Paul says to us, because he's going to practice what he just said. And he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So I thought, wow, how the Holy Spirit arranges these things, because we set this all in motion in our planning way back sometime when we met in November concerning this or even earlier than that, I think maybe and concerning this series had all of this series laid out sometime early December or so. And it just so happens that I'm going to talk to you about prayer today on the Sunday before we meet on first Wednesday for prayer. Isn't that a coincidence? I don't believe in coinky dinkies, do you? God is sovereign. He wants us to hear this. So what is prayer? And what purpose does it serve in my life? What a great thing, because here's what Paul is going to do for the verses after verse 16. Is a prayer from Paul... For the church at Ephesus. So it's a great time for you and I to talk about prayer. It's what Paul says to them in his prayer. It's like if I were to write this, I would say, hey, let me tell you how I've been praying for you. Let me tell you how I've been praying for you. Well, that does something to us, doesn't it? It says that this person really cares if they're praying for me. It does. Oh, I love it because I have certain friends who will send me texts and, and they will say things like, hey, just prayed for you. And, and my first thought is not, you know, dude, what's about to happen to me in my life, right? You know, what, what, what is going to go on? My first thought is, man, I feel love from them and I feel concern and care for them because they have taken a moment to pray for me. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's saying to the people at, at Ephesus, hey, I just prayed for you. And here's how I prayed for you is what he's saying. And so when I read this, I became convicted. I became convicted because what I realized in this, and as Paul being the great pastor and leader as he was, 
that I'm not just called to preach to you. And I'm not just called to teach you on on a Sunday morning, but I'm equally called to pray for you as well. And, And I had to kind of repent because we live in this church culture of these big meetings and this presentation oriented church setting that we find ourselves in. And Paul models this out in leadership and said, not only am I your teacher or your preacher, but I'm also the one that is called to pray for you. Is what he says. So here's his prayer. We'll read it in just a moment. But I made some notes about what's in the prayer and, not, and what's not in the prayer. And what I realized in this prayer, there, there's no request for material blessings whatsoever. You say, Mark, if you're going to pray for me, please add that into your prayer, right? Yeah. So, but in Paul's prayer, if you read after verse 16, there are no mention of any material blessings. In fact, Paul doesn't even pray for their marriages. He doesn't even pray for their children. He doesn't pray for their jobs, their health. None of those kinds of things. Because what this prayer is, it is a prayer for a deep spiritual understanding that leads to knowing God better. Wow. It is a prayer that leads to a deep spiritual understanding that leads to knowing God better. So I want to come back to that in a moment, but I want to take a few minutes to talk to you about prayer. This Wednesday, 6 o'clock to 7, right here, we want to come together for a moment of praise, a moment of intercession. And a moment of contemplation. We want to come together and pray. You say, but Mark, prayer is really difficult. I struggle with that a lot. Can I give you a very simple definition of prayer? Prayer just means a dialogue with God. That's it. Wow. Fold up the notes. Let's pray. Go home, right? Because, no, there's more to say. There's more, but it is just a dialogue with God that God speaks to you and I through scripture. And I know that he speaks through us, speaks to us through many other mediums, nature, the Holy Spirit inside of us. But yet it all has to line up with scripture. So I go back and I simplify it that God speaks to us through scripture. And then we respond to God through prayer. It's simple. It really is. So I wrote in my notes, prayer is our privilege. Prayer is our privilege as being adopted in Christ. It is. And so I look at this and I embrace this, that this is absolutely an amazing privilege that you and I have. Now, let me tell you something. My children, my children have privileges in my house that you do not have. Now, don't get all hurt on me, okay? Understand it, right? But they, my kids have privileges at our house that, <clears throat> that you don't have. Because there's been moments that I have received a notification on my phone that somebody has disarmed our house and they're in our house, right? And so what I do is I look on the camera because Reba and I are together and we're kind of wondering who this might be, correct? So we look on the camera and it's one of our kids that that have maybe dropped by to do something or whatever. And here's the thing. We don't call and question them. Why are you in my house, right? Why? Because there are kids. So we don't do that. We, we don't, we don't call the police on them. 
I probably should sometimes, but I don't, right? Yes, we don't do that. Why? Because that's their privilege to do that. But if I look in the camera and I see one of you in my house without my consent, we have a problem. Correct? Yes. Because there's going to be some questions and I may have to call the police because you have just committed breaking and entering. Yes. You say, Mark, no one would ever do that. Well, don't don't kid yourself. Okay, we'll move on. Right. Because why? Because you're not my child. I love you, but that's the truth. You don't possess the privileges, but they do. And what I realized when I looked at this prayer that Paul prays, and I have to say, he starts out by saying, for this reason, and then he starts the prayer. All those 14 verses prior to that help me to understand that Prayer is a privilege or a benefit that I have, and it's a privilege or a benefit that's been paid for through the work of God, through his son Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb. So I can't take prayer lightly in my life. It's the gospel. It's the gospel, as we said in the past, that fuels that fuels all spiritual growth and discipline in my life. And that means prayer as well. And when I read those 14 verses and it gets to this point about prayer, I understand what I fuel my prayer life with. And you said, but Mark, I just can't pray. Then maybe you should look at your life because perhaps you are running your prayer life off of the wrong fuel. So do I have to pray as a Christian? That's a big question, isn't it? Do I have to pray as a Christian? But our prayers are like, and I would say this, and I found this somewhere in reading, that our prayers are like breathing is what they're like. They're like breathing to a Christian. So can you sustain your physical life without breathing? Do we want to try to have a little exercise to see if that's possible? I don't think so. So if prayer is like breathing, then when we neglect prayer in our life, we are destined for some kind of spiritual sickness within our life. Yeah, I've shared with you before about mine and Brad's trip to Colorado and Utah. The first night that we were in Colorado, we hit the trail right away. You know, we pop up our rooftop tent. We're a little over 12,000 feet that night. And, you know, and I get in the sleeping bag. There's nothing like sleeping outside under the stars in the Rockies. It is just absolutely amazing. And I get in my sleeping bag. It's so quiet. We're in an elevation. There's no cicadas. There's, you don't hear crickets. You don't hear frogs. It's just silent. And all of a sudden, I can hear my own heart beating. Now, that's weird, isn't it? I can hear my heart beating, and I thought, oh, that's a really neat thing. You know, that's really... And then all of a sudden, I realize it's probably not the neatest that I think it is, because all of a sudden, I realize that I'm struggling to breathe, right? 
and I'm laying flat in my sleeping bag, not moving around, and I'm struggling to breathe. So I'm trying to breathe. That's making my heart rate increase. I reach over and I touch Brad. You know, he's in the sleeping bag next to me. And I'm saying, dude, I'm really having a hard time breathing over here, you know. And his first thought was, you know, do you want me to take you back down the mountain? Well, I'm not going to wimp out on this thing, right? You know, if I die in a sleeping bag, so be it. But, you know, you're not taking me down the mountain. And so I laid there and I prayed for a while and I, and, and I calmed myself down. And, and what I realized is that that if I'm allowing my oxygen level to drop to a certain percentage, that I'm going to find myself in trouble here. So why do you and I think that we can sustain a healthy relationship with God outside of having regular dialogue with Him? Go for a week, if you're married in the room, right? Go for a week without speaking to your wife and see how healthy your relationship is. Right? One man said amen because he's been there. Mark McConnell. Ah, I know the voice. Try it. No, don't try it. Take my word for it. It doesn't work. And so really that prayer is like breath to you and I. So what I realized in studying this this morning and preparing to share this with you, that our life spiritually is two-dimensional. It really is. We have this vertical dimension of our life, and that is our relationship with God. And we have this horizontal dimension of our life, and that's our relationship with everyone around us and how we love and care for others around us. And what I realize is this, that those truly who are in Christ always demonstrates growth in both of those dimensions of their life, their faith in Christ and their love for others. And I would go as far as to say that those two are mutually exclusive, and that is that you can't have one without the other. So what this says to me, we're still in prayer. We're going to get away from it in a moment. So just hang on. That the bulk and the meat of this dialogue that I have with God through this relational conversation is one, about my relationship with him, and two, about my relationship with you is what it's about. And here, here's Paul. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He's waiting for his, his hearing before Caesar since he is a Roman citizen. And if anything, Paul should be praying for his own skin, right? And what is Paul doing? Paul is praying for the Ephesian church and their relationship with God. And I thought about that. Why? Because prayer in my life, in your life, is more than a celestial ATM machine. It really is. Yes. It's much more than that. And I think we have to look at the prayer that Paul prays, and we have to redefine our paradigm on prayer this morning is what we have to do. Because what I realize is this. Prayer is more about strengthening my relationship than trying to earn something from God. Because when I realized and I read all of this, these first 14 verses describe who we are in Christ. 
all of those kinds of things. And so Paul says, I want to pray that you have a greater understanding of who you are in God and you know God in a greater way. Because if you pray that kind of prayer, then all those other things in your life will flow out of that. I wrote this in my notes this week, that this is a prayer for you to know God better because from that deeper relationship flows greater works and greater love for others. So you're praying for the person next to you. I don't know what relationship they are to you. Maybe you don't even know them, right? Or maybe you know them well and things are a little kind of rocky between you and that individual you're sitting next to. Oh, this is a great time to make amends and this is a great time to kind of, you know, patch things up for a moment. And and so you're praying, God, help me to love the person next to me. I don't know if you've ever prayed that before. God, help me to love that person. Is that really the right prayer that we should pray? Or should we be praying, God, help me to know you more. And from that, I love that person sitting next to me for your glory. How many times have you prayed, God, help me love this person? And you never prayed, God, help me know you more. And from that relationship then that love for that individual will flow. So when I looked at this, I realized to, to, know, to really know someone better, and that's what Paul is praying for us in a moment, is that we know God better, that to know someone better means a, a resigning of my own will at times. The prayer in my life is not about uh, requesting God to join my plan, but it's about me submitting to God's plan is what it is. And when we turn his plan into our prayer, then we see those effective and fervent prayers that accomplish much that we find in James chapter 5 and verse 16. But when we see prayer as God submitting to our will, then we have transitioned our prayer to that celestial ATM machine. And then if that is the way you're praying, then you're always going to struggle with the sovereignty of God in your prayer life. You are. Because some of you have been there. You have been there. You say things like, well, God knows everything, right? God has everything planned. Well, Paul even says that he has predestined everything as well. So then why should I pray if God has everything already done? Then then why should I do all of this? And when you take prayer out of the parameters of relationship and you make it that ATM machine with God, you're going to find yourself sideways with the sovereignty of God. So I thought about how do I talk about that for a moment. So I I had this idea, right? There's this setting with a father and a child. And the father comes to the child and says, hey, dad, you know, could I have the keys to the car? Because I want to go to Target and I want to buy something. And dad looks at the child and says, well, absolutely not. You're only 10 years old, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what a good father would do. Isn't that correct? Yes. A good father doesn't say, yeah, here, here's, um, you know. Here's the keys to the car. And and by the way, 
you know, here's my entire bank account so you can go buy a dozen of eggs and bring it back home, right? Yeah. So he says, no, but because I love you, I will drive you to Target. And when you're old enough and, and when you are experienced enough and when it is the right time and I feel it's the right time for you, then I will give you the keys to the car. That's how a good father works. So my question for you on behalf of the 10-year-old, was the asking pointless? I think that's the question. Was the asking pointless? And I would say to you, I would say to you, absolutely not. And here's why. And I think this will help some of you as you're praying to a sovereign God. Because the love and care of the Father was revealed through the conversation, even though the child did not receive what they asked. Why do I ask a sovereign God for things in my life when he has predestined everything? It's a huge question, isn't it? Because there is value in that dialogue for your life because it reveals to you how good the Father is and that He is for you and not against you. So, drink a tea, ask a question. How many of you in the room have ever asked God for something and you did not, let's be honest, receive it? Raise your hand. Wow. You guys must really be bad. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's not true at all. The asking was absolutely profitable for you because it reveals the heart of of a loving father that he will always do the best thing for your life. God's delay, and I had to write this for myself, is often so you will realize how much he actually loves you. If you're treating God like, man, I'm taking all my time on prayer. So I know that, but hey, we'll get there. And uh, so if you are asking, if you're treating God like this celestial ATM machine, then what I realize about the ATM is this, that the ATM will give you money as long as you have money in your bank account. You do know, you do realize that's the way it works, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not a it's not a mechanical loan officer from the bank. Okay, that's not the way it works. It doesn't give you a loan. You have to have it in there. I know. I'm just teasing with you. You know that. But it will give you money from your bank account as long as the bank is. But it never asks you how you're going to use that money. Have you ever noticed that? It never asks you, are you making a wise purchase? Are you making a foolish purchase? It doesn't. It just gives it to you. And what I realize is this. That is not the way God works in my life. 
And that is not the way God, God has designed prayer to work within our lives. It's not that at all. Why? Because God always wants the best for you. And that is part of why Paul prays this prayer. Because you need to know him better. And you need to understand him in that light. So verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I underline that part. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance as saints? And these are important statements. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that you may know. And this is where we end today in a few moments. So maybe you have this image of God. That's why Paul says in your prayer life, you need to know him better. So maybe you have this image of God that he's, he's deity that somehow always wants to keep you uninformed. You know, always wants to keep you in the dark and keep you guessing because it's a way that God flexes his spiritual muscles in, in, in your life and toward you. Can I tell you, God does not play those positioning games in our lives like you and I will play with other people. He does not. So Paul's prayer is this for you and I. That God may give you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of him. And I got, you know, <clears throat> I saw the word wisdom and I thought, well, yeah, I understand that. But this revelation in the knowledge of him. And what is he talking about? And it's not a new revelation. It's not that at all. In fact, there is actually only one revelation. And that is the revelation of Jesus Christ as being the revealer of the Father. And so we have taught through that so many times in other books of the Bible that Jesus reveals to you and I who the Father is. And so this is about you and I knowing him better. Well, can we be more specific, Mark? Yes, Paul is here. And he says, here's what I want you to know about God. What is the hope to which you are called? He says, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And how is this accomplished? Because that's where we have to start. And that is the eyes of your heart. By the word heart, you can also write the word understanding. By the eyes of your heart or understanding, being enlightened. Wow. And again, I think this takes you and I back to the purpose of prayer and how this works within our lives. That we would know God is what he's saying. That this two dimension of our life is always we're growing in those areas of our relationship with God and our relationship with those around us. But he says that. The eyes of your heart being enlightened that you may know him. Because this is the very center of our existence as a human, as a follower of Christ. That we know God. Because to know God as being truth is to reveal all the falsehoods of my life. How do I even know if I'm in bondage if I don't know God? That's it. Self-deception is the worst deception of all because you don't know that you're deceived. And so what knowing God does, he reveals all those things within my life and sets me free from the bondage of the lies of sin and Satan within my life. 
And that's revealed through prayer and scripture within my life. But in our culture, I think we're bombarded continually with this thought about self-discovery. And I have to talk about that for a moment. Nathan touched on that last week for a minute. We're constantly bombarded with this thought about self-discovery. And I'm not going to throw that out completely. I'm not this morning. But of what value does that have in my life and your life if that's done at the expense of first and foremost knowing and understanding who God is? What does it matter if I know who I am if I don't know who God is? Because knowing God from that understanding flows my true identity. You know I love Charles Spurgeon, and so I always read something or often read something to, can I read a very long quote from Spurgeon this morning? Here it is. Thank you for your permission. Here's what it says, right? It has been said by someone, I think it's on the screen. Yes, there it is. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect, which is us, is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. That is such a powerful thought. I wish I could say things that well. And such a powerful thought from Spurgeon this morning that we can search for ourselves in this life and we can find all kinds of things in this world. But if we don't know God, if we are not pressing into him, if that is not the call upon our life and the desire of our life this morning, then really what advantage to us is all of those other things? Because Paul says to the church at Ephesus, who he's called faithful, John calls them enduring, bearing up under the load of the world around them, yet they're missing something. They've abandoned something, and that is the passion to know God, to know Him. Is that as much a passion for your life as is all the other things. So I went back to this statement, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And whoever, uh, and Pat is playing this morning. Pat, you better come, brother. I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah. But But I got hung up on this thought of, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And, and so I said, what does that mean? And, and what I realized is the, the same word, the same Greek word for understanding is heart. It's the seat of our being is, is what Paul is saying. It's where the reasoning of our life starts. And what I realized is that it's a submission of my of my reason, my understanding to the authority of God within my life. It's something that takes place within me. It is that the eyes of your understanding or your heart or my heart that I submit that to God. 
Because to understand what it means to be in Christ and your identity in Christ is not something that necessarily information can reveal to you, but it is something that is revealed to you through a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit within your life. Because it involves enlightenment. It's not just the acquisition of knowledge. But it's a surrender of your reasoning, of your heart, of your character, of your nature, of your inner life, of your emotions, of your mind, of your volition, and your will to God. Because what Paul is talking about, he's talking about surrender and submission. Mark, that makes me uncomfortable when you talk about those kinds of things. Because I've asked God for the keys and God said no, because you're only 10 years old. So I went and got the keys myself and I made my own set. And then I invited God to take a ride with me. And Paul says, stop. That this is my limited three-minute understanding of life in opposition to God's eternal knowledge and understanding of all existence. So what does God want me to know? That what is the hope to which he is called, we are called. Is there anything in life that makes you and I have more hope in life than to know that we have purpose? That this life is not just a series of meaningless seasons for us. That God has called us. God has blessed us with divine purpose. He said, then I want you to know what are the riches of the glorious inheritance. And I stopped for a moment when I saw this because I saw the word in, I-N, and I capitalized that. The glorious inheritance in the saints. And I thought, well, maybe that, that's just a misprint. Something is wrong there. But when I begin to research this, what I realize is this is absolutely transformational because when we think of inheritance, we think of our inheritance in God. But what Paul says to you and I is that you and I are so precious to God that God considers you and I his own inheritance. Have you ever thought about that? When you get time... Read the book of Deuteronomy, not all of it, okay? But the book of Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8 and 9. Can I give you a moment, uh, just a, a little bit of that? For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Did you realize that's how God feels about you? Did you know that? And then Paul says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That 
you must know and understand that you serve and love a God whose power is unmatched. Who shows his strength on your behalf. But God didn't design you just to look upon that strength. God designed you and I and then redeemed us so that that strength would be resident within us. Within us. Verse 20. And here's where we end. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. God gave Christ to the church, which is his body, you and I, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So if the death of Christ is God's greatest demonstration of love, then the resurrection has to be his supreme demonstration of his power. And that same power is resident in us. But when I begin to read those last couple of verses... What I realize is that it makes this distinction about our relationship with God and that of heavenly beings' relationship with God. And I thought that was interesting. That angels are subject to Him, but you and I as the redeemed are joined to Him. the church, which is his body. I cringe sometimes when people talk about believers after they pass from this life to eternity and they say that they have become an angel. Can I tell you, for a believer to become an angel is a demotion. Because they are not joined to Christ, but you and I are. And that is who we are in Christ. This is a journey about your identity. So that journey doesn't start with self-discovery. That journey this morning starts with knowing God. That's it. Knowing him better. And how do I do that? That I do that through prayer, through dialogue with him. That I read and I study. I, I, I fill my heart and my mind with scripture. But I have to have that dialogue with him. To know him. And then all of these other issues with relationships and struggling to love others 
then all of a sudden become possible because it flows directly from me knowing God in a greater way. Don't you love it that the scriptures do not leave us and God did not leave us powerless in this life. And he did not leave us with, without solutions to the struggles of this life. But he gave us the book of Ephesians. He did. So for a moment, can I pray with you and pray for you? If you take a posture of prayer, whether that's just bowing your heads or closing your eyes or sitting there silent for a moment. To think about what we have said together. That you can be like the church at Ephesus and you can be faithful and you can be patient and all of those things that are listed by Paul and John. But you can miss perhaps what is most important. And that is knowing God in a greater way in your life. You can struggle to accomplish things in this world. You can struggle to love others. And perhaps relationships are the largest block of our struggles in life. Or you can get to know God better. And from that relationship flows a love from your life far beyond what you could have ever dreamed possible. So Father, as we sit here as your children, that you know our hearts, you know where we are in our relationship with you, Father, you're even aware if we have tried to substitute faithfulness, patience, even enduring for a love relationship with you to know you better. So, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring us to a place of introspection of our own hearts and perhaps a place of conviction this morning of where we are in our vertical relationship and our horizontal relationships. And to realize that no matter how good we are, faithful we are, that we can't fix these things outside of knowing you better. And Father, that has always been your will. From the garden in Adam and Eve to us today is to know you. To know you, Father. So, Lord, let this be a moment of pressing into you this morning. A moment of surrendering our hearts, our place and seat of reason in our life to you. And saying, God, I just 
want to know you in a greater way. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word this morning. In your name.